Welcome to the second edition of Morbid Symptoms, the podcast where we try and examine the ongoing pandemic that we are all living through through the lens of sociological theory and disaster research. My name is Wes Cheek. I'm a visiting researcher and JSPS fellow at Ritz-Macon's Institute for Disaster Mitigation of Urban Cultural Heritage. Today we're going to do something a little less theoretical than we did last time and more disaster research related. We're going to talk about the idea of panic in a disaster. I thought it'd be a good idea uh, to address that as a casual look at my Facebook feed over the last few days tells me that something that's on people's minds. And I understand why. It's a good thing to think about, probably, and contemplate. Um, for a fuller account of the research on panic in a disaster setting, I highly recommend Kathleen Tierney's uh, newish book, Disasters, A Sociological Approach. Uh, Tierney has written about the idea of panic before and the myths surrounding it. Um, in this new book, she kind of puts together the storyline and other people who've written about it. It's a really great resource um, on disasters in general, but if you're looking to understand the writing on panic as well. Um, so let's look back. We have to go back a long time, kind of the beginnings of disaster research in the United States, which came after World War II when the U.S. government began to explore what would happen if a nuclear war were to break out. Right? That was a big concern at the time. Maybe it will be again. Who knows? What was expected was that the populace would erupt into mass chaos and, and a large-scale panic, uh, that cataclysmic hysteria um, would follow, and that there would be demoralization and a failure to cope with a new reality. That was kind of the thinking about what to expect after a nuclear attack or some kind of large-scale bombing. But interestingly, the early findings from World War II and the strategic bombing surveys told a different story. Uh, they, they didn't tell a story of panic and demoralization amongst populations that have been heavily, heavily bombed um, in Japan and Germany. So this tension between the findings of disaster research and the beliefs of the public at large, military planners, politicians, and even many in emergency management exist even now in the, this present moment. And that's an important tension to kind of understand, right? Uh, Disaster research isn't monolithic, and the people who actually respond to disasters and do reconstruction on disasters, all of those things are not necessarily all in line on their ways of thinking, right? There's a tension that exists throughout throughout this, and especially in the government and media. We find people that have this belief in, in the idea of a panic. So I want to read this quote uh, from... Quarantelli's account of a tornado that struck White County, Arkansas in 1952. And Quarantelli is one of the most uh, prominent, uh, formative researchers of disasters. He's considered in many ways the first kind of disaster researcher. And uh, his early accounts of disasters have, have set up this kind of counter-narrative to panics. And this, this account from 1952 of his team's uh, research into White County, Arkansas, the tornado in White County, Arkansas, is kind of the formative disaster research. So I'm going to read what he wrote about what he learned about disasters from that. So this is Quarantelli. Self-control is maintained in extreme threat situations. Panic or wild flight, hysterical breakdown, effective immobility are almost non-existent. Those in danger try to help one another because persons are frightened or afraid does not mean that they will fail to try and take protective actions. Passivity is not characteristic of the immediate post-disaster period. The initial and by far the greatest amount of search and rescue is undertaken on the spot by survivors. Severe mental health problems are not occasioned on any scale by disasters. Convergence on a disaster site is a major problem. There may be widespread stories of looting, but actual cases of looting are very rare in post-impact situations. So that was what Corntelli was writing in 1952, right? And there's a lot of... Uh, kind of texture and nuance and different kinds of research that come along later. Um, 
there might be more research into trauma now, a lot more research than there was then in the long-term health effects of a disaster. But on the whole, this, this, what Quarantelli is saying here has been proven out to be fairly accurate and represented a real change from what people thought was going to be the case. And this is in 1952, but yet the media narrative we have and oftentimes the government thinking we have still sticks to that narrative, right? And that trickles down to the public at large. Um, so what researchers have found is that there's a great deal of what is called pro-social behavior and status leveling that happens after a disaster, meaning generally that neighbors help neighbors, right? And that people, regardless of where they fit in, uh, social class, economic background, um, help out each other during a disaster. And that is... Uh, not 100% the case, but overwhelmingly the case. Um, and I think in most people's pers personal experiences, if you think back, you will, you will find that to be true as well. But despite that, the myth of disaster panic still exists. Why? Well, there is no one answer to that question, right? We can look at it in a lot of different ways, and we'll go through a few of those ways. One way is to see the media's role in showing us disasters and presenting the idea of a disaster to us. Uh, and just generally, we can break that down into two different types of media. Uh, news media, right, nonfiction media, and then fictionalized accounts of disasters, right? Those are two different ways that the idea of a disaster, kind of what a disaster is, kind of gets into our heads. Um, as to fictionalized accounts, we can speculate on why panic is an attractive narrative. It's visually appealing. It creates tensions and drama. Things burn. Things break. Boats get turned over. Uh, cars blow up. People react strongly. They do things, right? There isn't much of a dramatic arc to your main character uh, declaring stoically. It's probably best that we just wait this out, sitting calmly in a hallway while a storm blows past, right? That's not very dramatic. However, we cannot pretend that fictionalized accounts to, uh, don't penetrate people's way of thinking about disasters. They do. We often visualize what has already been visualized for us, right, in these contexts. Uh, in a similar vein, the news media are oftentimes delivering a contemporaneous product, right? They're, they're telling us what is happening now. Um, but their reporting can steer the narrative very quickly towards perceiving panic where little to none exists. Uh, this can also be driven by public officials. So the news media can drive public officials. Public officials can drive the news media. These can work in tandem with each other. Uh, one prominent example of that was during Hurricane Katrina when New Orleans Police Superintendent Eddie Compass went on television and declared that widespread murders were occurring and that children were being raped in the Superdome, right? If you've ever watched um, When the Levees Broke by the Spike Lee documentary, you'll see that him doing that live, right? So I'm going to tell you what Mr. Uh, Compass, a few quotes that he gave from that time, and these are from different sources. Um, he said on live TV, there were, or he said afterwards to, to his reporting on live TV that there were, this is quoting Eddie Compass, there were reports of rapes and children being raped, and I even got one report that my daughter was raped. In hindsight, I guess I heightened people's fears by me being the superintendent of police reporting these things that were reported to me. But there was really no way for me to check definitively. So instead, I erred on the side of caution. I didn't want people to think we were trying to cover anything, anything up. So I repeated these things without being substantiated, and it caused a lot of problems. It's interesting here that Mr. Compass describes his own exaggeration as erring on the side of caution, right? Uh, but he, in his position, and also he was working very hard on lots of sleep uh, in a really rough environment, um, he didn't want to be accused of covering up horrible things that were happening. When it turned out later, there was very little proof of horrible things happening. Um, that was when, looking back, it was problematic, what he said. And, and, and his outburst uh, drove a lot of the media coverage in the following narrative about Hurricane Katrina. Um, the case of Eddie Compass isn't exactly a description of panic necessarily, but a description of the breakdown of the social order. It was often 
that narrative comes together in tandem. There's a lot more to that particular subject and that particular fear that maybe we can go into another time. It's a whole other body of literature. However, the idea of a panic helps to drive these rumors and pushes law enforcement and public officials to try and react strongly to anything that appears like a breakdown in order. As the eminent sociologist of disasters Kai Erickson has pointed out regarding Hurricane Katrina, it was statistically one of the safer times to be in New Orleans in terms of the usual types of criminal violence, right? I want to be specific about that. Um, In fact, most deaths that occurred during Katrina were of a far more insidious type of violence, institutional neglect and and malignant racism, right? That's the kind of violence that, that caused deaths in Hurricane Katrina. Not that there was no crime, but that if you're looking at it in the statistical aggregate, right, there is, there is not the kind of crime that we perceive. Uh, the cruel irony here is that while people, largely black, largely poor, waited in orderly lines outside of the convention center for buses that were endlessly promised to arrive, they died of preventable conditions due to the failure of their government, not the thoughtless actions of their neighbors. They died following directions, right? So for some reason, well, not, not for we know reasons why, but there's a narrative out of Katrina that it was chaos, that chaos was what was uh, destroying people. Uh, and, and the people of New Orleans were largely um, following orders and acting with their neighbors and trying to do the right thing, right? Uh, the idea of panic can also hamper community response. For example, the case of the Cajun Navy's efforts in the 2017 Houston flooding. If you don't know, the Cajun Navy are an ad hoc group of citizens, largely from southeast and southwest Louisiana, who have their own boats for recreational fishing and have effectively responded to regional floods, um, kind of filling in the gap where the government uh, doesn't. So here's a report from CNN regarding the Houston 2017 uh, flooding. A man who told CNN Monday that rescuers with the Cajun Navy were being shot at and targeted by looters in Houston is not affiliated with the Cajun Navy's 2016 group. The Cajun Navy 2016 group of volunteers that gained fame for conducting heroic rescue operations during Louisiana's epic floods in 2016 says their rescuers in the Houston area have not had shots fired at them, nor have they been targeted by looters. Clyde Kane told CNN Monday that rescue operations were halted in some areas because rescuers were scared for their safety. He said on a Facebook video on the Louisiana Cajun Navy Facebook page that looters were targeting their boats and that shots had been fired. The Cajun Navy 2016 clarified on its own Facebook page that that had not happened. That's the report from CNN, right? So this idea that there's going to be a social breakdown, that panic is happening, uh, looting is widespread, just wasn't the case. But it kind of helped to drive the narrative here. And in fact, a lot of members of the Cajun Navy were were armed at this point. Um, All right. So another way to look at the idea of panic is from the standpoint of people who look forward to or expect a breakdown in the social order. There are people whose hobby it is to prep for some type of disaster or crisis. They spend large amounts of money on equipment, supplies, and even additional properties to which they can flee. For hobbyists like this, the idea of a panic provides a justification. Right? For, their, for their hobby and for their expenses. You can even look at it through a, through a Foucauldian lens, right? Uh, that suggesting that there will be a panic leaves open the application of power so that a perceived breakdown in the social order actually allows for a strengthening of that same order. That's always something to look out for. There's a very large demographic and ideological split between people who research disasters and the professionals who respond to and manage disasters. This split is not a complete one and it's not absolute. Uh, That being said, many people involved in city, state, and national response to disasters still prepare themselves for widespread panic, uh, the phenomenon, not not the jam band, um, or a breakdown of social order, right? In some ways, that fear is understandable, especially from representatives of the state. In other ways, in other ways, it is a tremendous missed opportunity when response efforts could better incorporate pro-social behavior and social leveling into their response. Another misunderstanding of panic can be classifying completely rational and sensible behavior as panic. 
For example, if the building you're in is on fire and you break out the window and leap into the bushes below, you're not panicking. You're doing exactly what is necessary. If a wild boar is chasing you through the woods and you shimmy up a tree, you are not panicking. You are improving your situation. Uh, that particular um, metaphor there is for anyone from northwest Florida. Uh, probably has happened to you before. If you were told in the news that you might be trapped in your house for a while and daily shopping might not be available, uh, stopping, stocking up on needed items is not panicking. It's just preparation, right? I often think of the novelist Murakami Haruki's book, Underground, which is an excellent account of the sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway system by the Om Shinriku religious cult in 1995, uh, right after the Kobe earthquake. One young woman was sitting in the train as the gas leaked through the car. Somewhat stunned by the lack of reaction, she decided to break out the window nearest her and jump out. In doing so, she spurred others to action and saved many lives, including her own. This was appropriate. This was necessary. Uh, it wasn't panic, right? In, in some other case, it might be considered that. In this case, completely appropriate. In my own dissertation, I write about uh, accounts from people I've interviewed um, regarding their escape from the March 11, 2011 tsunami in northeastern Japan. Uh, so I want to relate to you one account given to me by Mr. Matsuoka, who's a fisherman in the Togura area of Minami Sanriku. So I'm going to describe his experience, and we can see if that is panic or not. <clears throat> Here's Mr. Matsuoka. When the tsunami came, there was nothing in my head. I wasn't thinking. We evacuated with three people to a high area. From there, we could see the ocean, the three of us. So the water went out, making a big noise as it went out. So next to us, there were a lot of other people who were evacuating down there, down by the community center. That was an evacuation point. So we went there with the car around Hanako, Sagicho. We were looking down on the wave, and then there wasn't any water. There were oyster beds. There was no water, no noise. And then the water began coming in over the breakwater, over the jetty. Blah! It started coming up. It started to mix. I thought, this is bad. The mountains were a little far away, but I said to my wife, let's go. So we ran. We just tried to get up the mountain anywhere. Everyone. I don't know how many people. All of the people who had evacuated to the community center. It looked like a marathon. We were running, climbing, grabbing things to pull ourselves up with. We made it to the top. We weren't thinking anything. But when we got there, I looked over at my wife, and she was bleeding from her head because we had been so intent on running that we weren't thinking. So that's the Matsuoka's account, Mr. Matsuoka's account of their escape from the tsunami. Uh, I think if you put yourself in that situation, you would also realize that that's not panic. That's the completely appropriate measures to take at the time. Um, a scholar of social work, Marx, not as M-A-R-K-S, not M-A-R-X, uh, from Tulane, has discussed what he calls a trauma bond between people who go through disasters together. Um, there's also what has been termed the therapeutic community, uh, where the bonds and experience of a disaster can help people recover from their trauma as a group who have shared a similar experience, right? Uh, as we look now towards the ongoing pandemic and what will happen before we make it through to the other side, it's important to watch how the idea of panic and the mythology of panic are used. Power often seeks to assert control. People are often unaware of their possibility to do good. Uh, this crisis presents the opportunity for neighbors to help neighbors and for common people to outperform their flawed governments. We should not let the idea of panic provoke us into losing faith in each other. That's the end of this episode for this time. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.